Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. We are a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapters of Physicians for a National Health Program. And we broadcast here out of the Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville. The views and opinions expressed on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. WFMP LP 1065 is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and funding. Join us. Check us out at forwardradio.org. Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare has several campaigns going. We want to expand Medicare to everyone. And we want to protect Medicare from the privatization of outside firms. Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare is uh, some members are headed to Washington, D.C., and we're providing free transportation. You can learn more about our campaigns at kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. Self and why you support single payer? Uh, I'm John Yarmouth, the congressman from Louisville, and I've been a long standing supporter of single payer, a co sponsor of the single payer legislation in the House. And uh, I think, as we've seen over the last many decades, if you looked at every problem that has been identified with health care, it's pretty much resolved by single payer. And I think the debate going on right now is interesting because. It, I think it illustrates the fact that the solution to most of our health care issues, particularly insurance issues, is single-payer. This episode of Single Payer Radio, we're broadcasting part one of a program recorded a dozen years ago at the Louisville Free Public Library. Kentuckians for Single-Payer Health Care and Physicians for a National Health Plan, Kentucky, brought Dr. Steffi Woolhandler to town. Listen in to this powerhouse leader in the single-payer movement. Good evening. Uh, my name is Kay Tillow. I'm the coordinator of the Kentuckians for Single-Payer Healthcare, and we are very happy that all of you are here this evening to share this event. Um, I just wanted to let you know that you are welcome to participate in our organization that is growing rapidly and is lots of fun. We meet the third Thursday of every month at 5.30 in this library and um, we meet in the boardroom on the mezzanine. And the next meeting is next Thursday at 5.30 p.m. and we would welcome you with open arms to help us in building this movement that will finally achieve health care for everyone in our nation. <laughs> and I would like to introduce to you um, my colleague who heads the Physicians for a National Health Program here in Kentucky. That's the other organization here uh, that has worked so hard on uh, building the movement for single-payer health care. Uh, Dr. Garrett Adams.
We're very grateful to the uh, library for allowing us the use of this beautiful room. This event is not uh, uh, an officially sponsored library program. Uh, they are in, it's important to the library to make that distinction that uh, we, are use, we're, we are the public and we're using the free public facility and we're grateful for that. Um, <clears throat> we've been speaking to members of the Metro Council and the Metro Council Chambers and you'll see uh, a little blue uh, card, postcard on your chair and I'm going to ask Christian uh, Monroe Layton to explain that. Christian. HR 676, it's a bill in the U.S. Congress right now, um, sponsored by John Conyers and dozens of other U.S. Congress people, um, and it's a bill for single-payer national health insurance, um, and dozens of cities and organizations across the country have passed resolutions endorsing this bill, and we think it would be really exciting to add Louisville to this list. Um, so as Garrett said, we've had a number of speakers in the last four Metro Council meetings talking about young adults, physicians, small business owners, children, how the um, current system is adversely affecting these populations. And we're working with a Metro Council member to draft a resolution for Louisville, and there's copies of it on the table over there if you're interested. Um, this blue postcard is our way to make it easy for you to um, tell your council person you want them to pass this bill. So um, if you'll sign it and fill out your name and address, we'll be collecting them at the end of the presentation by the door. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. I'd also like to thank Dr. Stanton for supplying a large group of these um, Yes magazines. So there are a couple of really great articles in that. Thank you, Duke, for that. Um, and now um, to uh, introduce our guest, our honored guest, Dr. Steffi Woolhandler. Steffi, you'll feel very comfortable when Steffi begins to speak because she speaks our language, I mean, in the vernacular, and so we can understand. Uh, and I, it, I was just delighted when, when I heard this brilliant Harvard academician speak Southern. And um, so, um, I don't want to take too much of her time. Steffi went to Stanford. She went to LSU Medical School in New Orleans. Uh, and she went to um, <clears throat> the uh, Berkeley School of Public Health for a Master of Public Health degree. And uh, I think most of her time since then, she's been at Harvard in the, uh, up there. I, I do want to uh, quickly recognize uh, a couple of young people. Uh, Yes, I'm talking about you. Uh, we have two young ladies who drove up from Birmingham today. They're second-year medical students at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Risha Shah was one of our uh, PNHP interns last summer, and her friend Allie, and then uh, Pavan Batraju. Pavan is a second-year medical student at the University of Florida.
Hi, uh, thanks. Um, I am from Shreveport, Louisiana, and as I hang around here longer, my southern accent's all going to come back to me. Um, There's a little bit of a problem for me when I first went up to Cambridge from the south. Um, there was a lot I had to adjust to, for instance, things like eating sushi. And my friends kept trying to get me to eat sushi, but they finally gave up because I couldn't remember not to call it bait. <laughs> um, I, I also found that, you know, some of the egos of the Harvard professors were really sort of over the top. They're extremely arrogant people, and, and they have these very high opinion of themselves. And, of course, the joke going around is that a favorite way for a Harvard professor to commit suicide is to climb to his top of his ego and jump off. Uh, um, but I didn't really believe this until, you know, I, I saw this Harvard professor walking down in his, you know, uniform of rumpled to corduroys, his sweet coat, and someone walked up to him and said, um, do you have a light? And this professor goes, no, but I've got a great body. <laughs> but you know there are some pro there are some problems with, with arrogant professors there. Um, we were just at a editorial meeting um, with the Louisville Courier staff, editorial staff. Uh, they sat there for an hour and a half and listened to Garrett and Kay and I uh, talk about single payer. They seemed like they were ready to stay practically all night, um, but they were teasing us about teasing me anyway about the arrogant professor. Um, but let's, I want to talk tonight about health care and what's going on in this country. Um, I think if I were conservative, I would want to talk to you about the rising costs of health care, and that would be enough of a reason to talk about health care reform. But you may have guessed that I'm not a conservative, and I'm much more concerned, in fact, with the fact that we have 47 million uninsured Americans. Um, and luckily, single-payer health insurance is a way to address both of those issues, both the rising cost of health care and the access problem symbolized by the 47 million Americans who have no health insurance. Um, and you in Kentucky um, have the same problems as elsewhere in terms of uninsured people. As you probably know, there's about 560 thousand uninsured people in the state of Kentucky. Uh, that's about one out of every seven people in the state has no health insurance. Um, that puts you right around the national average. Um, but in addition to the one in seven people in your state who have no health insurance, um, you have 1.3 million people who do rely directly on government insurance. Otherwise, they wouldn't have it. Um, so that would be people who have Medicare, Medicaid, uh, VA, or military. Um, and in addition, you have another 2.4 million people who have employer-provided insurance. And you're probably used to thinking of employer-provided insurance as being private. Okay? Everyone says that's private. Um, however, it turns out that... Um, about one quarter of all people who get health insurance, about one quarter of all the money that employers spend on health insurance for workers, about one quarter of that money is spent by government employers. So people like uh, school systems, uh, the FBI, the police, they're buying, quote, private insurance for their workers, um, but in fact, um, 
obviously that money's coming from the taxpayers. So um, the point I'm trying to make is you have many uninsured people in the state. You have 1.3 million who have some sort of government coverage. You have 2.4 million who have, quote, private coverage, but about a fourth of that is, in fact, paid for by government. The point being that we are a lot closer to having a tax-funded health care system in the state than um, might otherwise be obvious. Now, who are the uninsured? Okay, who are these people? Um, and I think one thing that would illustrate who these people are the best is to talk about a group you probably don't realize includes uninsured people, and that's American veterans. Okay. Um, it turns out that nearly 12% of all veterans in the United States under the age of 65 have no insurance and are not using VA health services. 12% of veterans, of non-elderly veterans. And you may sort of scratch your head and say, how can that be? Don't they all get the VA? Well, it turns out that VA health insurance, um, well, it's automatic if you have a, dis a service-connected disability, but for the vast majority of veterans who don't have a disability or service-connected disability, you can only get access to the VA if you pass a means test. So it's something like Medicaid. You have to be poor to get VA care um, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not disabled. Um, so veterans are in the same situation that many other working people are. Um, many of them are not poor enough to qualify for Medicaid or means-tested VA care, but they're not affluent enough to buy their own health insurance. And consequently, as I said, 12% of all veterans in this country have no health insurance. Um, illustrates the point that the majority of uninsured people in this country are working people and their families. Three-quarters of all uninsured people in this country are either themselves a worker or live in a family with a worker. Okay, so the uninsured in this country are primarily working poor, middle to low income, working families, too affluent for Medicaid, too poor to get insurance through their jobs or pay for it privately. Okay. And it's probably no surprise to anyone in the room that uninsured people have an elevated death rate relative to the insured population. Um, the excess death rate, if you're uninsured, is at least 25%. At least 25%, maybe as much as 33%. Put another way, if you compare an insured adult and an uninsured adult, the uninsured adult is one quarter to one third more likely to die than the person with health insurance. Okay. Uh, and that's not surprising. Um, uh, there was a while in American health policy where everybody pretended that health care didn't have anything to do with, um, with good health. That's a bunch of baloney. Um, obviously, you need a good lifestyle and good health care to maintain good health. It's not an either-or proposition. Um, now, why do we have so many uninsured people? Why do the numbers, the numbers are going up year by year. Every year we seem to be adding about another one million to the ranks of the uninsured. Um, and I think there's two things going on here. The economy is being transformed. Um, the first uh, transformation is what people sometimes call globalization, and you're all familiar with the term. 
Globalization is a situation in, where you, in which you have international competition that tends to um, put companies out of business that have high production costs. And um, health care in this country, because it is often paid by employers, is a cost of production. And because health care costs are so high, production costs are very high relative to other countries. So um, the globalizations, the pressure of globalization is actually causing what I call a slow motion uh, implosion, a slow motion collapse of our system of employer-sponsored um, coverage. And uh, just to illustrate, um, I, I know there's people here from UAW, maybe after I'm done with my formal remarks, we could comment more about this, but there's been tremendous pressure on the U.S. Automob automotive industry, at least in part due to the extremely high health care costs in the automotive industry. The automotive industry has high health care costs, not because they've done thing, anything wrong, um, though they may have, but that's not why they have high health costs. It's not because they've done something wrong. It's because they've done things right. The automotive industry provides good health benefits to workers and good retirement benefits. Uh, and also they've stuck around. They're an older industry. They've been around for decades. So they've accumulated older workers and a lot of obligations. So by doing things right, the automotive industry has uh, generates huge health care costs, and they're finding they simply can't compete in a global economy. Um, now, to give you some evidence of this, I know usually when you think of globalization, you probably think of, you know, 12-year-old uh, girls at sewing machines in Sri Lanka. Um, but you probably don't think about Canada. You don't think about U.S. jobs running away and ending up in Canada. But in fact, that's exactly what's happened in the automotive industry in this country. At the same time where Ford and GM are saying, we may go under because of health care costs in the U.S., we may cease operations in, North America, in the U.S. because of health care costs, there's been $5 billion of new automotive investment in Canada. Now, Canada does not have lower wage costs than the U.S., but it does have lower health care costs because Canada has national health insurance. If you um, look, for instance, at the Ford Freestar, it's a minivan, uh, also called the Ford Windstar. It's actually quite a good minivan. Some of you may drive it. Very good car. Turns out that every Ford Windstar or Freestar sold in North America is made in Ontario. Uh, again, because health care costs are lower in Ontario. Um, and we can talk, if some of the folks from UAW want to talk about this, this is the late breaking news. I heard that Ford has just offered to buy out its entire uh, U.S. workforce uh, if, if and only if, they're willing to give up their health benefits, their claimed health benefits from now till all eternity. So um, it's a very, very clearly a major issue, not just for Ford and GM, but for the entire U.S. manufacturing sector. The question is, can the manufacturing sector in the United States survive given the high health care costs in this country? Um, some people say, well, who cares about manufacturing? I don't think that. I think I care about manufacturing. I care about those jobs. And I think part of the reason we need to fix the health care system is really to support the U.S. economy. Um, so that's globalization. The force powers of globalization, the pressures of global competition, 
forcing U.S. companies to cut back on health insurance costs and consequently dumping workers out uh, without health insurance. But there's another force in the economy, a related force, that I call Walmartization. Walmartization, that's a neologism, it's a word I made up. Um, but what I'm talking about is the replacement of the good, high-paying jobs with benefits by low-paying, low-benefit jobs. Um, Walmart is not just uh, a good target for target practice, um, the, perhaps through that as well, but Walmart is the largest private employer in the United States, and it's growing at a phenomenal rate. They're about to open 80 superstores in the state of California, for instance, which will put most of the grocery stores in California out of business, growing at a phenomenal rate, and a lot the basis of their growth is the Walmart-style jobs, the Walmartized jobs with lo very low benefits. Um, uh, it's hard to get their health benefits. Even when you get them, they're terrible. They have high deductibles, high co-payments. It's hard to cover your family. That's part of their low, quote, cost structure is that they pay very little um, in the way of benefits costs. In fact, Walmart managers are taught to encourage Walmart employees to apply for Medicaid for themselves and for their children. So two major forces going on that are driving up the number of people who are uninsured, driving down the health coverage of the American people, globalization and Walmartization of jobs. But it would be a mistake to just talk about the 47 million Americans who have no health insurance whatsoever. Um, the, um, in addition to the 47 million people who have no health insurance, there's literally tens of millions more who are underinsured, who have only partial coverage, people who bought, pay their health insurance premiums in good faith and often get a, a totally inadequate substandard product. Um, and many, uh, there's different ways to estimate the uh, proportion of people who are underinsured in this country. Um, certainly the Bush administration and its advocacy of something called consumer-driven health care is advocating making more underinsurance, giving even more partial coverage, giving people paper-thin policies um, that look like health insurance on paper but are really not there when you need them. And um, to give you some data about this, I'd like to talk about the Consumer Bankruptcy Project, which is a project that um, I worked on. Um, I am a doctor and, and actually practice medicine and teach medicine. Um, but I actually have a confession to make, which is that my undergraduate degree is in economics. So I do a fair amount of economics work. Um, I, my friends really like to tease me about being an economist, particularly one who won't eat sushi, but being an economist who won't eat sushi, and they say things like, um, an economist, that's someone who didn't have the personality to become an accountant. Okay. Um, isn't that mean? Okay. Um, but anyway, I have been involved in a lot of economic analyses, not just of health financing, but consumer financing, and was involved with a project called the Consumer Bankruptcy Project. Uh, with some colleagues at Harvard Law School, some sociologists. Uh, we uh, got federal judges at five uh, federal districts to agree to let us distribute questionnaires to people in bankruptcy courts when they show up for their bankruptcy meetings. 
um, ask him why they were in bankruptcy. And you have to collect the data in this way because people won't tell you if they've ever been bankrupted. I'm sure there's people in this room who've been in bankruptcy and you may or may not have told your friends about it. But people, it's not something people talk about. But we did recruit people um, in the bankruptcy courts themselves and we asked them why they were in bankruptcy. Um, talked to 1,800 different people in the five courts. It turns out that more than half of people in bankruptcy court, more than half of people in bankruptcy are there at least in part due to medical illness or medical bills. Okay, now you may have seen this uh, about a year ago when it came out, but um, that was our finding, more than half are there. Uh, but perhaps even more shocking than that fact was the fact that of people in medical bankruptcy, okay, um, more than three quarters of them, 76% had health insurance at the onset of the illness that bankrupted them. Now, how can this be? Well, in some cases, uh, the most common case was people had private health insurance through their job. They got sick, or a family member got sick, requiring them to leave their job to care for the family member, and they lost their health insurance. Okay? That's the most common scenario. Um, the second scenario was people had health insurance, private health insurance. They kept it throughout the course of a prolonged illness but were bankrupted anyway by gaps in their coverage like co-payments, deductibles, and uncovered services. So just to tell you a few of the stories, because we did get our, our interviewers, we called people back, got an interview on the phone, and we did hear some stories. This was a fairly typical story. A school teacher in the state of Tennessee who um, had health insurance, had a heart attack, her insurance stopped when she wasn't working. Um, she had a prolonged hospitalization, uninsured for much of it. She talked to the hospital and got them to write off the hospitalization. That was free. She was bankrupted anyway by the doctor's bills and the medication bills. Okay. Went back to work five years later, uh, five months later, but, uh, you know, was in bankruptcy at the time. Um, another story, um, a middle-aged man who uh, had uh, a lung problem, uh, ended up having a lung cancer that was removed, um, actually had coverage for the removal of the lung cancer, um, but then he, he thought it was cured, but he got out of the hospital and he couldn't go back to his physically demanding job. He had to get a, an easier job. So he did find himself another job, but the new job would not cover any problems with his lungs because they were pre-existing conditions. And despite the fact that he showed up at work every day, uh, he was bankrupted by the cost of the continued care for his lung condition. And, you know, just a third story, because uh, this is something you may have faced yourself. Man had a very serious knee injury, uh, tore three or four limit ligaments and broke some bones. Uh, health insurance, had health insurance through his job, a big national company. The health insurance paid for 80% of his hospital costs. He was able to come up with the other 20%, but it paid none of his physical therapy. Had uh, $8,000 in physical therapy bills and was bankrupted by them. But that was his only choice. If he wanted to use a knee again, he needed physical therapy. So those are people who are underinsured, who think they have good insurance, who pay those insurance premiums in good faith, 
uh, and the insurance industry sells them a defective product. Um, and that should be a little wonder to you that after the bankruptcy study came out, the insurance industry paid all sorts of uh, think tanks and uh, conservative academics around the country to try to punch holes in the bankruptcy study that we did. But of course, it really has stood up. And I think it speaks to the problem that the health insurance system we have now, it's not serving the uninsured people. And it's really not serving insured people uh, if you get seriously ill. If you get an expensive prolonged illness, it won't serve you very well either. Okay. It works fine if you're, you're healthy. But what kind of health insurance is that? I mean, a health insurance system that only works when you're healthy, it's like uh, having an, um, an umbrella that works fine unless there's a downpour and then it, it melts, right? And that's what we have for health insurance. We have like one of those paper Chinese umbrellas works fine in a sprinkle, melts in the rain, okay? So the problem of uninsurance, the problems of underinsurance, it really causing serious financial problems for large uh, sector of the American people. Um, now let's switch a little bit to um, talk about economics um, and how a national health insurance system would function economically to solve the problem. Um, if you look at what's happened in terms of healthcare manpower, in terms of healthcare employment, healthcare workers, um, and you divide healthcare work into two areas, the uh, what I call the clinical side, the people who actually provide the care, the nurses, the orderlies, the doctors, the therapists, those what I would call the clinical side. And the other side would be the administrative side, the people who push papers around, who keep the records, who help uh, collect money, pay the bills. Um, we've seen a tremendous growth in the share of administrative work within total health care. So that administration's share of total health care work has risen by almost 50% in the last three decades. Um, currently, um, about nearly one out of every three health care dollars just goes to the paperwork cost, to the billing, the administration, the advertising, the uh, eligibility determination. Um, in that group, in that category, we include not just the, the insurance overhead, but also the overhead that doctors and nurses have trying to deal with insurance. Um, so if you look, for instance, at Canada, where they do have single-payer national health insurance, uh, insurance overhead in Canada is about 1% of total health spending. If you look in the United States, where we have literally hundreds of different insurance companies, each with dozens of different plans, insurance overhead just the, is uh, uh, at least 13 and sometimes 18 or even 22 percent. Now in health insurance uh, overhead at a place like Humana is 22 percent, what that means is you give them a dollar for health care, they hang on to 22 cents of it, and then they just have 78 cents left over to pay for the doctors, nurses, therapists, etc. Um, it turns out that there's huge potential administrative savings by going from a complicated multi-payer system like we have now to a single-payer national health insurance system. Uh, we've estimated potential administrative savings at at least $300 billion per year. And even in healthcare, $300 billion dollars in administrative savings goes a very long way. It's plenty of money to 
cover all of the 47 million uninsured. It's plenty of money to, um, to improve health insurance coverage for those of us who are underinsured who now have partial coverage. Um, it's actually a lot of money to do the job to cover everyone. Um, but obviously it's a very unpopular with the health insurance industry for whom those administrative overhead dollars are their um, living. Right? Um, there's a saying on the West Coast, you, do, you can't break people's rice bowls. Well, pretty clearly you'd be raised, breaking Humana's rice bowl, if you will, by going to national health insurance. Um, now, I think that the case for this is compelling. Um, from a physician's point of view, um, the administration is extremely burdensome, and I know there's several other physicians in the room who may want to comment on this. Um, but I, I feel in my own encounters with patients, I'm literally writing the whole time when I should be making eye contact because of the documentation requirements in my own practice. Um, my receptionist time is 90% of it, to be honest, is about um, insurance paperwork, perhaps 10% is things like scheduling that I would need her to do anyway. Um, nurses say, just say they're drowning in paperwork. Um, the rules and regulations that are placed on us by insurance companies often make no sense whatsoever. They're designed not for optimal patient care, um, but to save money for the insurance company. And I, I do believe we need to be efficient in our use of resources. I do think there's a lot of excessive care in this country, and we as physicians, we as a society have an obligation to prevent excessive care, uh, to save that money and use those resources for people who need it. But the way we're doing it now through each individual insurance company having their own rules and regulations and uh, paperwork uh, is wasting a lot of resources and is making uh, doctors, nurses, and others who work in healthcare very unhappy. Uh, and probably many of you uh, have dealt with this as a patient. Um, you know, in other countries, they, when somebody dies, they commemorate it with flowers and uh, condolence notes. But in this country, if you've had a family member who dies, you spend the next three months sorting out their health care bills. Okay. So it's an administrative nightmare for everyone. Um, now, what do we know about this model of having private insurance companies oversee care? Um, is that a good model? And it's hard to get evidence for it, but we do have one randomized controlled trial um, that was done, paid for out of your tax dollars, about $100 million of your tax dollars, called the RAND Health Insurance Experiment. And there's two different aspects of that experiment I will talk about one now and one a little later in the speech. But in one aspect of that study, they randomly assigned people, that is by lot, by drawing straws, if you will, they assigned people either to an HMO or to a free fee-for-service system, like you would have under single payer. Um, they followed these people for three to five years and found, lo and behold, that people did much better in a free fee-for-service system than they did in a managed care setting. Okay. And um, it was particularly true of low-income people with chronic illness. Okay. Higher-income people did just as well in the HMO. Uh, healthy people did just as well in the HMO. But the folks who needed the care most had an elevated risk of dying at the end of the experiment 
uh, because the quality of care for them wasn't working. Um, now, I've talked a little about that uh, HMO overhead, and I do view the HMO overhead as the money that's just kept by the HMO for their uh, insurance paperwork and paper publishing is a, is a major reason why the quality is likely to be lower in the HMO setting. It's just they've got less money because they're raking so much off the top for their own paperwork. Um, some people, of course, do extremely well uh, in the HMO setting. Um, certainly my former colleague, Jack Rowe, uh, did extremely well. Um, I have to pick on him a little bit because he is a former colleague of mine. and. Um, he was head of geriatrics at Harvard before he took a job um, for some administrative jobs in New York City and then ultimately became the head of Aetna. Okay. And uh, Jack, while he was at Aetna, um, it was I think about 65 months and he earned almost half a billion dollars. Half a billion dollars. And I did the math and that turned out to be, his Aetna salary turned out to be $225,000 per day, counting Sundays and holidays. $225,000 per day, including Sundays and holidays. So that money that is being held, on, held as administrative costs, that money that they're getting by restricting uh, your access to care, restricting what doctor you can see, that money is paying Jack Rowe $225,000 a day. Um, so um, anyway, Jack is actually the head of University of Connecticut now. He stepped down from Aetna. Um, but I do, know, I do know that his salary at Aetna was higher than his salary as a geriatrician at Harvard. Um, okay. Um, now, it's fashionable to think, well, okay, this is private industry, you know, um, why shouldn't private CEOs make all that money? Um, I personally am not comfortable with it. I'm not comfortable with Jack Rowe making that much money off of health care. Um, and someone pointed out to me that if I'm not comfortable with Jack Rowe making $225,000 a day off of health care, then maybe I'm not comfortable with for-profit participation in the health care system. Because if you say it's for-profit and corporate, live with it. That's what corporate officers pay themselves in this country. If you can't live with that, and I really can't, then I think you have to say, uh, do we really support the idea of corporate, for-profit corporate participation in health care? Um, and I would say not, okay? Uh, I would say we're not, I'm not comfortable with corporate health care for a simple reason that markets don't exist in health care. Um, market, efficient markets in healthcare are to quote the eminent Canadian economist uh, Robert G. Evans, uh, akin to powdered unicorn horn. Okay. They're a mythical being. Efficient markets in healthcare are mythical. It's like a unicorn horn. Um, they don't exist and never will exist. And that's because people who are sick cannot be prudent consumers. You are not a purchaser. You are a patient. When It's fine when you're healthy. Uh, you should shop around for a good doctor. You should shop around for a good doctor. By all means, I would encourage that. But most health spending is accounted for by the 20% of the population in any given year who's really sick. And when you're sick, you're not going to be able to say no. Okay? And it's not a good idea for you to say no. 
And to just give an example out of my own life, um, my daughter had a serious broken leg, okay? Um, she had a hospitalization at Children's Hospital that cost $30,000 for this broken leg. Um, they took her to surgery. It turned out she didn't need to go to surgery. Um, so, you know, some people might argue if I'd been a prudent purchaser, I would have said no to the surgery. I would have said no, don't buy it. You know, it's been the $30,000. She didn't need the surgery anyway. When, when they got in there, they didn't need to be there. Um, but I'm just reminded of, of um, what the surgeon said to me when he asked for the consent of surgery. He said, well, I don't know if we need to go in or not. But if we don't, she may lose her leg, okay? So that's the situation most people are in in health. I'm a doctor, okay? That, but as a patient, a patient's family, you can't be a prudent purchaser, okay? You have to listen to what the doctors say. And if they go in and they made a mistake, I mean, if actually the doctor felt terrible about the scar on her leg that she didn't need, then he needs to deal with it, the orthopedist. But you can't expect patients or patients' families to be prudent purchasers when they say it might be cancer or we might have to take her away. And um, we're not prudent purchasers when we're sick. And when we're sick, that's when we use the most health care. So the market model does not make sense in health care. It does not make sense um, because when you're sick, you're not going to say no to the doctors. We need to work with the doctors, work with the hospitals to make sure they only do the tests and procedures that are needed. They make the right decisions. Um, and we don't want patients and their families to feel like they're a consumer and they're looking in their pocketbook and saying, am I going to take the chance on her leg or not? Okay? We don't want that. Okay? So, um, so we don't have a market in health care. Um, but we do have the world's most expensive health care system. Um, anyone know what the per capita health spending is in the United States this year? Anyone want to take a guess? Six or seven. Yeah. It depends if you've got the most up-to-date figures. It's probably 7,000. Uh, and that's twice the average for other developed nations. Twice the average. The average for other developed nations is about 3,500. Um, so you have to ask the question, are we getting good value for our money? Um, I would point out that every other developed nation uses some form of national health insurance. And we're unique in the developed world in not having national health insurance. And they're spending half what we do. Um, so you have to ask if we're getting good value for money. And I think the answer is pretty clearly no. Um, I do want to say I think we have very good doctors. We have very good nurses. We have very good hospitals. We have very good technology but we're getting very bad value for money, particularly given um, that we've got such great resources. For instance, if you look at life expectancy in the United States, life expectancy in the U.S. is two to three years shorter than it is in Canada and most of Northwestern Europe. Okay? If you look at maternal mortality, that is women who die during childbirth, it's about threefold higher than the average for the rest of the developed world. Uh, infant mortality, that is, uh, children who, bought, who died within the first year of life, uh, twice as high as in Sweden. Okay? Um, so we're not getting very good value for money if you look at our health outcomes. Um, 
What about our health utilization? Well, if you look at the number of inpatient days, the number of days that Americans spend in hospitals, in fact, it's about 40% less than people in other developed nations because our length of stay is so short. If you look at things like bone marrow transplants, particularly if you look at specific in recent times when you really need it, uh, for a type of leukemia called CML, it's almost always indicated. We have lower rates of bone marrow transplant in that situation when it's really needed than people in other countries. Um, believe it or not, there's even countries that use more MRIs than we do. J Japan uses almost twice as much MRI and high technology imaging as we do. Um, so we're not getting better health outcomes in terms of life expectancy. We're not getting more inpatient care. We're not even getting more tech. Technology. Well, what about science? You've probably heard how great American science is. And a lot of wonderful things do happen in American science. But if you look on a per capita basis, the United States puts out no more science per capita, no more journal articles, no more medical journal articles than uh, many countries in Northwestern Europe, Australia, etc. Uh, the only place where we lead the world, of course, is in overhead costs. Um, and there, our, our health overhead costs um, are many-fold higher than anywhere else on Earth. Okay. Uh, our group, while it's true that there are lots of national health insurance systems, um, and virtually all of them provide a better financing structure than we've got in this country, our group uh, is Physicians for National Health Program. We have 13,000 physician members. Um, and we do tend to look at Canada. I know a lot of people are kind of surprised when they hear that 13,000 physicians would support increased government intervention in health care. And uh, one editorial writer at the Berkshire Eagle even made the joke, Physicians for National Health Program, that's a little like furriers for animal rights. Um, nonetheless, I think increasingly physicians such as myself and many of our other members in the room are finding they just can't get, get care to the patients who need it. And it breaks, your, it breaks your heart as a doctor to see a patient who needs care. You know the care is out there and you just can't get it to them. Uh, it breaks your heart to see someone come in and die from something we could have saved their life if they'd shown up two days sooner or six months sooner. It breaks your heart. And that's uh, why doctors join physicians for a national health program. Uh, do we think we're going to earn more money under national health insurance? No. We may not earn any less, but we're probably not going to earn more. But that's why that, that we really feel that we need to get the health care out there to people who need it. And um, it's very difficult to work in a system where you see the great nurses, hospitals, medicines, you know you can do the job, and the finance system stops you from doing it. Okay. Um, in terms of Canada, um, we did just do a recent study where we took a good look at the United States and Canada. There was a, a big study we, the, that collected data from a random sample of Americans and Canadians and was able to compare the care in the two countries. Um, and not surprisingly, care was much more difficult to for Americans to get than it was for Canadians to get. It turns out Canadians' access to care was equivalent to that of insured Americans, uh, but much better than the access to care for uninsured Americans. So everyone in Canada, all comers, have access to care um, 
that's just as good as that for insured Americans and much better than uninsured Americans. Um, the reasons that people uh, failed to get access to care were a little different. Uh, in the United States, only 1% of people said they couldn't get care because the wait was too long, whereas in Canada, 3% of people said they couldn't get care because the wait was too long. However, in the United States, 15% of people said they couldn't get care because they couldn't pay versus about 7% of people in Canada. So um, things are better in Canada, that's true. Um, there are some waits in Canada. They're about three times as frequent as in the United States. Um, our group believes that the waits in Canada result not from the system being wrong, but just that the system's underfunded. The system's funded at only about 60% the level, the average level of funding in the United States. So we think if you took Canadian-style insurance with Canadian-style efficiency um, and put our levels of funding into it, the two trillion we seem willing to spend, you'd have a great system. You've had Canada, Canada Deluxe with universal access, no waste for anything, um, much better health statistics. Um, now, a lot of people say, oh, Canadians, they're so different from people in the United States. Um, you know, Canadians are so polite. They're the, the people who say thank you to their cash machine. But uh, in fact, when, when people do studies of the ethos in the two countries, they find virtually identical ethos that Americans uh, do feel that health care should be available regardless of ability to pay. That's an almost universal sentiment among the American people. Um, well, what about all these people seeking care in the United States? I mean, aren't all the Canadians unhappy and rushing across the border to get care? And certainly you'd believe that if you read the Wall Street Journal and other conservative papers who are constantly running stories about the shortages and problems in Canada. Uh, there are problems, but the Wall Street Journal is greatly exaggerating them, and I'm just going to give you some information about that. Um, Several Canadian authors looked into this issue, and the first thing they did was they went around to uh, uh, ambulatory surgery centers along the U.S.-Canadian border. So if people who were unable to get surgery in Canada wanted to come to the U.S., this is where they'd go. Um, and they asked them, oh, do you see Canadian patients here? And 40% of the surgery surgical centers right along the U.S.-Canada border said, we see no Canadians within a year. No Canadians. Um, another 40% said uh, that they saw one or two a year, and the rest usually saw about one or two a month. So there was no uh, rush of Canadians across the border. These authors continued, and they did a survey of all hospital admissions in the three largest border states, uh, New York, Michigan, and Washington State. And if you understand the um, population distribution in Canada, and I'm not going to go into that here, most of the population lives within 100 miles of those three st states. Canadian population is concentrated right at the border, and it's concentrated in those areas, close to New York, close to Michigan, and close to Washington State. But in those three states, a grand total of uh, less than 900 Canadians had been treated in all the hospitals in the state within the past year 
which is a trivial number, only 17% of those people had come to the United States seeking care. The other 83% of them had had an emergency in the United States. So certainly there's not a lot of Canadians in U.S. hospitals. When these authors went to America's best hospitals, there's 60 of them on this list that I think Newsweek puts together, no, U.S. News puts it together, and asked them how many Canadians do you see. There was only one hospital that saw five or more uh, Canadians a month. Okay. And um, when they did a survey of Canadians um, to ask, it was 18,000 Canadians uh, about their health care, fewer than 1% had received any health care outside of Canada within the past year, and only about 20% of them had gone to the U.S. seeking care. So you're getting down to these minuscule numbers of people who, who did come to the U.S. for care. There are some of them who got frustrated with waiting, um, who got, uh, were angry something wasn't available, but it's very small numbers relative to the entire population. Um, now, how does Canada do this? How do they spend half, 60% uh, say of what we do and provide so much care? And a lot of those administrative savings I was talking about, uh, they spend only 16 cents on the dollar in administration versus 33 cents in the U.S. Uh, and I told you that our group had done, run some numbers about how, what you could save if the U.S. health system were run as efficiently as Canada. But I want to give you an idea of the magnitude of those numbers here in the state of Kentucky. So let's bring this home. Okay. Uh, for the year 2003, uh, which is when we have the numbers for, in this state you spent $21 billion on health care. $21 billion. Of which at least $5.7 billion went for paperwork, health administration paperwork. If you had a Canadian-style system, you would have saved $4 billion of those dollars. $4 billion of those dollars. Um, so you have $4 billion in savings. In the state, you have about half a million, a half a million uninsured people. You do the long division there. It turns out, just by the administrative savings, you would have enough money to spend $8,216 for every uninsured person in the state. Now, it's actually quite a bit more than it takes to cover an uninsured person. Um, so that um, you would have money to cover the uninsured and money to improve the coverage for people who now have um, only partial coverage. Okay. Um, I talked a little bit about consumer-directed health care. Uh, that is the only real health policy that the Bush administration is putting forward. It's the only thing that he mentioned about health care in the State of the Union address. Lately, he's talked a little bit about transparency. and if if you don't mind me, uh, that is making health doctors and hospitals post their prices on the wall. And if you'll forgive me for mixing metaphors, I think the transparency is really a fig leaf um, over the huge problems in health care. It's not going to help you to know the cost. It, it wasn't going to help me if the surgeon had said, do you want the surgery for your daughter? It's going to cost you $30,000. If he'd said $100,000, I would have had to say yes once he says she may lose a leg. So. Um, transparency is literally a fig leaf. The only real policy he's talking about is consumer-directed health care. And what consumer-directed health care means, it's an incredible, like, euphemism. Only it's worse than a euphemism because it kind of flips an idea upside down. Consumer-directed health plan is a plan with a high deductible. 
That's what he means. A high deductible consumer directed health care. Um, and usually the deductible would be on the order of five to ten thousand dollars per family. You may, with consumer directed health care, you may or may not get a health savings account with it from your employer. Okay. The typical amount that an employer puts in is about a thousand dollars. So even if you're one of the lucky ones who got a thousand dollars in your health savings account from your employer, there's still a four to nine thousand dollar gap that you are facing if your kid has a bad soccer injury like mine or you get chest pain when you walk out of here. So that's consumer-directed health care. The health savings accounts, it, it's really a hoax for working people. They're very valuable to people in high-income brackets. Okay? And uh, again, I'm not, I don't have time to go into that, but the, most of the, the health savings accounts are being used by people in high-income bra brackets as like a, a new IRA to save for retirement. Okay? If you want, we can talk about why they're so beneficial. Um, but when Bush says, I want to take all the limits off the health savings account, what he's really saying is I'm going to offer affluent people the ability to have unlimited IRAs and save for retirement at taxpayers' expense because we'll be subsidizing 30 or 40 percent of it. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so I've talked theoretically about what happens when you make people pay out of pocket. Um, that... Um, that actually you're not going to be able to prevent the really high expenditures. What you probably can prevent is you can stop people from coming in for primary care. You can stop people from coming in for, for preventive care. Um, if a working person has to take 50 bucks out of their own pocket, or for that matter, out of their own health savings account, every time they need uh, their blood pressure checked, they're not going to do it. So you will uh, discourage uh, preventive care and primary care which is a horrible idea from a doctor's point of view, but that is what you'll do. And you don't have to, it's just common sense that's going to happen, but you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, there's another aspect of the experiment I was talking about, the RAND health insurance experiment. Another aspect of it was they compared free fee-for-service care with uh, high-deductible plans. Okay? And people who had the high-deductible plans um, used uh, less of a lot of important services. For instance, their toddlers were less likely to be immunized. Um, men were less likely to get preventive care. People got fewer pap smears. Um, people got fewer eye checks. They also used less of, of other care that, you know, might not be that useful, but the useful primary and preventive care was, all, was reduced by making people pay out of their pocket. It's just logical, and many of you might say, well, why did the government have to spend $100 million to find that one out? But they did prove it scientifically. People pay out of their pocket. They're not going to go in for care. Well, that's going to do it for our show this week. If you have questions about the organization, how to get involved, uh, the different campaigns, the trip to Washington, D.C., Kay Tillo, our chairperson, is a good resource for that, and Kay would be glad to provide you information. Kay's email address, nursenpo at aol.com, nursenpo at aol.com. We also do have the, uh, the website, kyhealthcare.org, Facebook account, Twitter account, Instagram account, a lot of ways you can um, 
reach out and learn more. For Single Payer Radio, I'm Mark McKinley. Thanks for listening.